Your brain health matters. Welcome to the Let's Talk Brain Health podcast. Join the conversation on brain health and wellness with your expert hosts, Dr. Crystal Culler and Dr. Jonathan Arts, and respected guests. Discover ways to take charge of your total brain health, mind, body, spirit. Tune in to the latest brain care news, science-based tips, and practical strategies to build a better brain and live a brain-healthy lifestyle. By prioritizing your brain health, you are taking an important step towards living a happier, healthier life. Let's continue our brain care journey together with our next guest. I'd like to welcome Dr. Melissa Sunderman to Let's Talk Brain Health. Melissa is a double board-certified physician in internal medicine and lifestyle medicine and has been practicing medicine for over 20 years. She also has training in integrative medicine through the University of Michigan and has completed a professional training program in mind-body medicine through the Center for Mind-Body Medicine based in Washington, D.C. She has been featured in several lifestyle medicine articles and podcasts, as well as invited speaker for health and wellness national and international conferences. She strongly believes in fostering a partnership with her patients and helping to guide them towards a healing pathway through self-care, utilizing the pillars of lifestyle medicine. Dr. Sunderman is also known as Dr. Outdoors and is the founding chair of the Nature as Medicine Subcommittee for the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Dr. Sunderman currently specializes in longevity and lifestyle medicine with Lifespan Medicine. Prior to this role, she practiced lifestyle medicine at Canyon Ranch Wellness Resort in Lenox, Massachusetts, and Trinity Health in Ann Arbor, Michigan. In addition to her clinical roles, she is the co-founder of Revive Lifestyle Medicine, being coaching and creates educational content for several health and well-being companies. She does her best to practice what she preaches and enjoys running, biking, hiking, skiing, and spending time outdoors. She's a 10-time, yes, that's 10-time Boston Marathon finisher, three-time full Ironman triathlon finisher, and currently training for several upcoming ultra marathons. She truly believes that age is just a number and is passionate about spreading the word to all of her patients, family, and friends. Welcome, Dr. Sunderman. I am so excited to have you here on the Let's Talk Brain Health podcast as someone that's been following a lot of your work and updates and recent publications. So you've earned the nickname Dr. Outdoors for your work in advocacy. Can you tell us about your journey into lifestyle medicine and if there was anything that particularly shifted your focus to nature as medicine? Right. First off, thanks for having me on this podcast. I think this is really interesting that you guys have a brain health podcast and you're having me, Dr. Outdoors on here as well as lifestyle medicine. So yeah, so my journey, like my bio says, I've been practicing medicine for over 20 years. That journey started a long time ago and I am a DO, which is just the universe knew very early on when I went to medical school to become a DO, doctor of osteopathic medicine, that one day that DO would also stand for Dr. Outdoors so that the world is complete. And I've always had an interest in true healing and what that encompasses. And I'm a DO, I'm a conventional medicine trained doctor. However, as a DO, we also trained in osteopathic manual medicine and how to think of the body as a whole. So I think that's how I always thought of health as being an integrated system. And that's why I went on to do additional training in integrative medicine and mind body medicine. And it was really, as I was getting older, 
that we know we can't take our health for granted ever, but as we get older, we really can't. And what does wellness really look like for myself, for my patients, for my profession? And when I looked at all of these different avenues of what I do on a daily basis to feel good, I found out about the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, the field of lifestyle medicine, and I felt like I was coming home. I think for many years, many decades of my practice, I always felt like this outlier because as a conventional Western medicine doctor, a lot of pills, a lot of procedures, diagnostic tests, which absolutely have their place. However, there were so many other pieces of the puzzle that I felt that we needed to be educating our patients about, and that's where lifestyle medicine really resonated. So I decided to become board certified in lifestyle medicine in 2018, passed my board exam in 2019, and ever since then have just found my true home. We have over 4,000 physicians now board certified in lifestyle medicine, which is really exciting. We have over 11,000 members of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine worldwide. So I truly have found my colleagues, my friends my community, and we all support each other because we all believe in shifting the paradigm truly from a sick care to a well care system and starting upriver, upstream of what true prevention looks like. And I'm so happy and so proud to be a part of this community. Dr. Sonderman, could you explain to the audience what actually is lifestyle medicine? What's it encompass? I assume there's a preventative component. There's also a therapeutic component. Absolutely. So lifestyle medicine uses evidence-based medicine to not only prevent and treat but also reverse chronic diseases. So we're talking about chronic diseases. We're talking about type two diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, coronary artery disease, chronic kidney disease, obesity. So many individuals are aware that, oh, we can try to prevent these things from happening. We can treat them. But a lot of people don't know we could actually reverse these chronic diseases. So lifestyle medicine uses evidence-based medicine to do all of these things. So what are some of the misconceptions about lifestyle medicine and brain health that you've encountered and how have you been addressing them? Yeah. So I think I'm going to say misconceptions versus there's not enough awareness. And when I see my patients and let's say it's a new patient, I take a very thorough history, not only that patient's history, but also a family history. And it's not uncommon when I'm taking a family history that an individual might say, I'm bound to get diabetes and I'm probably going to have a stroke because everyone in my family, my grandparents had a stroke, my parents had a stroke, my uncle had a stroke, and probably just going to get one and run to my family. So the misconception there, and maybe the misunderstanding is that yes, genes run in families, but so do lifestyles. And so do tongue in cheek, so do recipes, right? So there's no judgment, there's no shame, but I think a lot of individuals don't realize that genes are not your destiny. And that's really good news through education and learning and empowering individuals to lead better lifestyles and make different choices you could possibly avoid getting those diseases that tend to run in your family. So I think it's trying to raise awareness of that and empowering and educating my patients. And then also I think that people, the misconception is they don't think they have any control over this. And we're learning so much more about brain health and cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease that I've been practicing medicine for 25 years. And for a lot of those years as a general intern, as primary care physician, I've treated a lot of Alzheimer's disease. And it's a really devastating disease, not only for the individual, but for 
loved ones who are witnessing this. And really medications that we've had thus far do not prevent. And really in terms of treating symptoms, we really have not seen much difference. And so a lot of times it was, I don't know what I can do, but I'm going to give you a prescription for this medication or this medication, just feeling like I was doing something. And for a family member to feel like they were doing something. And now we are learning that our lifestyle behaviors have so much to do with our brain health as well as our chronic diseases. So I think that was such an exciting discovery for me. And it was really at the 2019 Lifestyle Medicine Annual Conference that I heard husband and wife, Dean and Aisha Sherzai speak. They're from Loma Linda, California, Lifestyle Medicine, and they're doing a lot of research on preventative neurology with respect to lifestyle behaviors and the prevention of dementia. And I walked away from their presentation so invigorated and so empowered that I had tools now that I could share with my patients and my loved ones, my parents included, that could help prevent their brain decline. We need to really educate our community about this. To make small choices, small improvements in their lifestyle can make a big difference down the road. And I think with brain health, when I speak about brain health, I have a wonderful slide from The Lancet, which your listeners probably know is a very reputable medical journal. And it goes to the trajectory of life about our brain health. And for many people, they don't think about brain health maybe until they're in their 50s or 60s. I'm in my mid-50s now. I'm starting to get more forgetful, so I'm thinking about it. However, this graph shows that even preconception and then early childhood with low education or air pollution or alcohol misuse, or as we get through sedentary lifestyles, repeated concussions, throughout the trajectory of our life, our lifestyles, things that we do have control over can have a huge effect down you know, the road as we get older about our cognitive health. So I think that's something that I really want people to be aware of. And just to follow up on that, there's a definition or a word called resilience. There's another word called cognitive reserve. Sure, you definitely know about that. So in lifestyle medicine, it seems to me that when you just commented about everybody has a history, they may have had things happen to their brain. Sometimes they had no control over it. Sometimes they did have some control over it. And over time, the goal is to maintain function. So in lifestyle medicine, 50, what type of things have you been telling patients to do to reduce the risk? Let's just go to the pillars of lifestyle medicine. So when I'm speaking on lifestyle medicine, your listeners know what this is. So again, I'm board certified through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And there are six official pillars of lifestyle medicine. And these six pillars in how to practice them are going to not only prevent, treat, and reverse chronic diseases, but also are good for our cognitive reserve. So the first is going to be nutrition. And as the father of medicine, Hippocrates said many centuries ago, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. And he was not talking about, no offense, McDonald's and Burger King, really about foods that contain phytonutrients and antioxidants. And with regards to brain health, we do talk about the MIND diet. So the Mediterranean DASH diet intervention for neurodegenerative delay. And so what we really do advocate in lifestyle medicine for disease prevention is a, what I want to term a plant forward or plant strong dietary pattern. So a dietary pattern that is rich in fruits and vegetables and beans and whole grains and nuts and seeds, basically eat the rainbow, trying to avoid highly processed foods. I think that's just, do you have to be plant exclusive? No, you don't have to be. If you choose to be, that's okay. But just trying to get, like I say to my patients, just try to eat more of the good stuff, right? Crowd out your plate with the good stuff. So that mind diet has 
has really shown through studies that it can be powerful for our cognitive reserve. We do align with that and just more, let's eat the rainbow and lots of plants. So the second pillar is going to be exercise. I tend to use the term movement when I'm counseling my patients. Personally, I love to exercise, but when I say exercise to some of my patients, they go, oh, that sounds like that's hard and that's boring. And I don't like that. I want to go to the gym. And when we talk about movement and ways to move your body, that can be so vast, right? Some people love to go swim in the lake. Some people love to go hiking and look for birds. Some people are obsessed with pickleball right now or like to go dance in their house. So we talk about just moving our bodies and walking is one of the best ways that we can move our body. And we have evidence to that shows that moving our body, getting steps in during the day can also be preventative for dementia. So it's good for our brains to move our body. We know that every time we move our body and exercise, we generate brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. And BDNF, I like to describe as being a miracle grow for your brain. So just like we're familiar with that creepy looking blue powder that we put on plants, and then all of a sudden the plants grow and they sprout and they get big and they're happy. That's what BDNF is for our brains. Get that BDNF generated. And any way that you move your body, I am good with. When I have patients say, Dr. Sunderman, what is the best form of exercise? What should I do? And I go, what do you like to do? oh, I got this bike. I just love to go on the dirt roads and ride my bike. And I go, okay, then that's the best form of exercise for you because you will do it because you enjoy it. So moving on to pillar number three is sleep. And sleep truly is a superpower. And for many years when I was in residency, early on in practice, and I had to take call, I worked 36 hour shifts, I was convinced that I don't need sleep. And I was so far from the truth. We know that sleep and really aiming to get seven to nine hours of restorative sleep every night is where brain healing really happens. And we know about the glymphatic system, which is different than our lymphatic. People know that when they get sick, they get little swollen bumps in their neck, and that's the lymphatic system. But we've got the glymphatic system in our brain. And during the course of the day, a lot of tangled proteins and toxins will build up in the brain. And when we go into the sleep cycles and we're getting enough restorative sleep, that glymphatic system, I like to describe them as like a series of dump trucks. And during the course of the day, they're just doing their own thing, taking a break. But when we get into those different cycles of sleep, the dump trucks go to work and try to clean out the brain of all those toxins that have built up. So that's why it's really important. We think that all we do when we sleep is just rest our body and maybe have some crazy dreams, but your brain is doing a ton of creativity and problem solving. So sleep is really important. The fourth pillar is going to be avoidance of risky substances and behaviors. So that's smoking, excessive alcohol, drug use. And I really like to term that as buffering. So using behaviors or substances to escape in any form is not going to be healthy. And to just be mindful of that, it's not saying that you can't ever have a glass of wine if you're out for a really nice dinner in Italy. It's to be mindful about that. And then the fifth pillar is going to be stress and stress management and Everyone has stress in their life. That's just an unavoidable, that's what life is, right? It's how we deal with stress and in practicing deep breathing or mindfulness to deal with stress. And we know that repeated periods of stress can increase risk of cognitive decline. So it's not that we shouldn't ever have stress in our life. It's just that when we are feeling stressed, what tools do we have in our stress toolbox? And then the sixth official pillar of lifestyle medicine is connection, social connection. And I like to say that we were all part of one of the largest social psychology experiments 
on connection. And that was called lockdown (laughs) and how we were told to not see anyone, not touch anyone, not hug anyone for a period of a year and a half. And we all felt this void. And that's what social connection is about. Our current Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, this is his platform. And I'm so happy that he is bringing this to light. In fact, he came out with the Surgeon General's advisory in May about the health risks of social isolation and loneliness. Now, loneliness is different than being alone. I love my alone time. I think everyone loves to be alone sometimes just to relax, but that's different than being lonely. And it's not that you have to be this huge extrovert, but it's having one or two friends or one or two family members, or maybe some work colleagues or a place of worship that you feel connected or a book club or a knitting club, just feeling a part of something and other people. They say that the health risks of Social isolation and loneliness could be equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes per day, which is just alarming. We know that as we get older, 70s and 80s, that being socially isolated and lonely is not good for our brains either, right? And increased risk of dementia with that. So those are the six official pillars of lifestyle medicine. And should I mention the seventh unofficial pillar? Sure. Okay. So the seventh unofficial pillar, and I'm working very hard to make it an official pillar, is daily exposure to nature and fresh air, hence the name Dr. Outdoors. I am the founding chair of the Nature as Medicine subcommittee for the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And that's our big dream and big goal is to get a seventh pillar on the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. So right now, six official pillars and then an unofficial seventh pillar. Thank you so much for walking us through those pillars of lifestyle medicine. I know where we're at with the podcast, we've covered a few of these tenets of health because brain health, lifestyle risk factors align very well with lifestyle medicine. And to recap those, we were talking about nutrition, movement, sleep, avoiding risk, social connection, adding in nature, and then stress management. Through all the conversations we've had where we dive deeper into each topic, I suspect our listeners can start to see how interconnected all of these elements of our lifestyle are, which is a goal of our podcast. So we're so grateful that you're here to tell us a little bit more about nature and the benefits for brain health. Can you elaborate on how nature benefits our brain? Yeah. So let me just start just maybe with some origins of where like this concept of nature as medicine started. And really it was back in the 19 in Japan where they did some of the first studies on nature. And maybe some people have heard of forest bathing, which is it's Shinrin Yoku in Japanese translated to forest bathing. And Dr. King Lee is one of the most prolific researchers on this. And he did some of the early studies where they brought subjects into the forest and really were looking at some different factors in health and well-being. So one of the factors that they looked at were natural killer cell activity and natural killer cell activity are evolved in our immune system. So that's not only fighting off infections, but that's also reducing inflammation. So we know that more we learn about brain health, some of our brain diseases can be related to inflammation in the brain. So what he found was spending time in the forest boosted natural killer cell activity. So just by going outdoors, you boost your immune system. What was really cool is that some of the early studies, he would bring individuals into the forest for two days, and then they would go back to their home environment. They measured that natural killer cell activity one week later, and then one month later. And what he found was their immune system, their natural killer cell activity was still elevated 30 days after returning from the forest. So we know that by going outdoors today, you're still going to get those benefits. They also saw 
spending time outdoors would decrease cortisol levels. Cortisol is a stress hormone. We have to have cortisol in our body. If you don't, you end up in the ICU and we give it to you. That's not a good thing. But too much cortisol is not a good thing either because that's inflammation and causes things can lead to increased risk of diabetes and can raise our blood pressure. So we see that going out into the outdoors and in nature can reduce our cortisol levels. It also can lower our heart rate, our blood pressure, and just boost our well-being and boost our serotonin. So we've got studies from several decades to support all of these health and well-being. Looking more specifically at brain health, there have been some studies that really have focused on this. And again, nature has been around forever, right? And we intuitively know that being outdoors is good for us. And unfortunately, with modern technology and modern conveniences, we don't spend as much time outdoors. So now people are doing more and more research and it's good to have that, right? Because then that can help to shift policy to get healthcare systems and cities and governments to really embrace this. And one fact to know, the EPA did a study in this country looking at Americans. The average American only spends 7% of their time outdoors during every day. The rest of the time is spent inside buildings, whether that's homes, schools, workplaces, or automobiles or transportation. So a very small amount of time is spent outdoors nowadays. And what's really sad is our kids today are spending more and more time indoors. I grew up in the 70s. So my mom kicked me out every when I wasn't at school, I was sent outdoors and didn't come back in until the streetlights went on. So looking at brain health, some of the studies that I want to highlight, look at being at Washington State University, where they looked at a lot of times they'll look at green cover. And if they looked at if your zip code had an increased risk or an increase of 10% in tree covering and tree canopy, there was a lower chance that older people reported their health as poor or as fair. So if they had more green covering tree canopy, it looked like they were having higher well-being scores. And then we had in Canada recently, which was a study of over 26,000 urban participants, and this was ages 45 to 86, and they showed that urban greenness could decrease loneliness and social isolation. I think it's really important to highlight that a lot of people live like I live in the woods. It's great. I can just walk out my door and be in nature, but a lot of people live in cities. And so that's where it's really important that just having tree-lined streets and tree canopy can be really beneficial for individuals' health and well-being. Not only that, but it can help cool the cities as well. So we know that in cities that can get very hot and it's not conducive for people to be outdoors, just having tree-lined streets can be really good for promoting that. We also know that being outdoors can help boost our creativity. So that's a brain component that when our brains are more creative, they're more productive. And really exciting, there was a study that came out this past year that looked at telomeres. So telomeres are on the ends of our chromosomes and our DNA. And when we get older, we tend to have shortening of our telomeres. So what we found in this, what we, what the study found was that spending time around green and blue spaces could actually lengthen the telomeres. So looking at a big focus of medicine today is longevity and how can we live not only longer lives, but spend more time in our well span. So telomeres lengthening by being outdoors. Also, there's evidence to show that there's decreased risk of stroke with green space exposure 
exposure. So we know that air pollution can be a risk for increased risk of stroke, but green space exposure could reduce the risk of stroke. So a lot of studies that are coming out to really support this decreased risk of hospitalization for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's with uh, tree canopy and having green spaces. I think back to when I was training about 15 years ago in psychology and the field of eco-psychology and author Richard Louv always said <laughs> vitamin N. Yes. And the idea that the prescription for nature is to go, mm-hmm. meaning get outdoors, which I am sure aligns with the message of everything you've shared. But at the end of the day, how important nature can be for mm-hmm. our own health and well-being. But for many of us, we may be challenged in our immediate environments of how do we seek out nature or mm-hmm. right now we're recording in the middle of winter. So how also can we bring nature indoors if getting mm-hmm. outdoors has additional barriers. So thank you so much for highlighting that. In some of the brain health literature, you mentioned this concept in your previous response too, there was notions about green space and blue space. Mm -hmm. Can you define what that is and highlight the benefits of what each one may have to offer individuals? Green Green spaces would be Being close to trees and plants and shrubs and woods and forests, or if you go to your city park, your urban park, Central Park, or in Boston, the Boston Garden, and you've got trees surrounding you. So that would be more green spaces. And then blue spaces are going to be water. So it's going to be anything from oceans to lakes to streams to waterfalls to ponds to rivers. So that's going to be blue spaces. Now, as Dr. Outdoors, I think green, blue, this time of year, white, they're all going to be beneficial. I just had a recent post on LinkedIn and I asked people, what do you prefer? And some people are like, oh, I like both. And then other people are pretty strongly opinionated. They say, oh gosh, every time I'm near the ocean, I can hear the rhythmic sounds of the water. I just get into the meditative state. And then other people say, gosh, the mountains just move me. And I love to see the mountains. And so My goal is just to get people outdoors. So green and blue, all good. There are more studies and research that have been done on green spaces. Not to say that blue spaces are not equally important. We just haven't seen as robust research on that. It's out there. And one of the studies that I like to share is looking at blue spaces and their powerful impact on adult well-being. And what they found were that if individuals spent time visiting blue spaces in their youth, they tended to have better self-reported well-being scores in midlife. And so they think that basically if you started going to a lake or a pond or an ocean or a waterfall when you were young, you really developed maybe this love or this curiosity or felt safe there and then tended to go back to those places or find, seek out opportunities to go to those places as you got older. And then by the time you were in midlife, you're like, yeah, I'm connected and I feel good. So I think that they're equally important. And I think that sometimes it's just accessibility. Like I live in Michigan. Fortunately, I do have a lake nearby me, but an ocean is going to be really hard to come by. So I think that accessibility geographical sometimes is what's near you, what you're going to be able to visit 
the most. And then maybe if you are able to take a travel vacation to go visit, and I really try to encourage people that if you are able to get some time off and can take a family trip or just take a weekend away is to really incorporate nature into that and seek out opportunities to look at your, the parks that are near you. Or if you could see a national park in this country, we've got so many wonderful resources for that. So really trying to incorporate nature into our, not only our everyday life, but sometimes if we can take a vacation and a little respite to think about incorporating nature into that. Melissa, we're closing out on this super interesting topic. How do you see the field of lifestyle medicine evolving in the next decade? Healthcare, as we know, it's a broken system and financially and we're incentivized to keep people sick, right? Because procedures make hospital medical systems a lot of money. So if I get everyone and off a of medication that's the hospital's gonna say, what? They don't need their bypass surgery and they don't need this. However, when you look at the big picture, we can't afford as a country to take care of sick people. When we look at dementia, and when you look at the projections of the statistics of Alzheimer's dementia and the rise in that, it's expensive. Memory care is really expensive. So we are really looking as lifestyle medicine to shift the paradigm of how we practice medicine because we know we can save the healthcare system money. Not only that, why wouldn't we want individuals to have long healthy lives. We can increase, we're really good at getting people on medications and doing procedures and maybe life support of keeping people alive a long time. We're about lifespan, but gosh, if your quality of life in the last 10 years is nothing, we're not doing any, that's a disservice. So we're really about increasing spam and lifestyle medicine is able to do that. So I think we're looking at reimbursement models now, shifting how insurance companies are compensating physicians and compensating healthcare organizations so that we are incentivized to keep people well <laughs> and get people off of medications. We have so many brilliant people who are members of and physicians with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and staff that are working at a national level about policy. And I'm so grateful for their voices and to be a collective passionate group that's really looking to shift that paradigm for the greater good. And the way that nature is coming into this, I think that one of the biggest things everyone is concerned about the health of our planet, right? that our planet cannot survive with the way that we're treating it. And when we think about, I've got two kids in my twenties and hopefully someday they're going to have kids and I want them to have a planet that's healthy. And so the more that we connect with nature and experience nature ourselves, we're going to connect with our planet and we're going to want to take care of that planet. So I think that alignment between nature as medicine and benefits our humans, but it benefits our planet as well. I believe in brain health, we are now calling the wealth span of what you are targeting. In our field, there's a lot of advocacy around elongating the brain health span. And at the mm -hmm. same time, all of us disciplines are really talking about those crucial years of where our health and our well-being is improved and we can live life the way we like to on our own terms. Yes. And so we'll be interested to see how both lines will evolve in the next few years. But before we wind down our conversation with you, I'd like to pick your brain on some questions that will give our audience members some tangible takeaways from Dr. Outdoors. <laughs> Is there one book or seminal work that shifted your thinking on brain health and wellness? 
So I think that you mentioned Richard Luov. He's got wonderful books. And so he's a great author. And then also Florence Williams wrote The Nature Fix. And when I gave a keynote presentation at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and those were the books that I really read and were just chock full of evidence and anecdotal stories. So I think those two authors have really brought so much light. And then, of course, Biophilia in E.O. Wilson was a prolific writer about biophilia. So we've just got some cheerleaders out there for nature as medicine. We are building a robust brain health list books for our audience. I'd like to shift to a bit of a personal question for you. As an expert in lifestyle medicine, brain health, and nature, what is your one non-negotiable for your own brain care? My quote is, there's no bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. So I live in Michigan. I'll give an example of today. Negative 18 degree real feel. And I texted my girlfriend running partner. I said, so should we wear ski goggles while we're running or not? My non-negotiable is I try to move my body every day unless I'm injured. And then I respect the healing process, but it's getting outdoors each and every day and preferably moving my body, whether that's going for a walk and walking with my dogs or going for a run or riding a bike or going for a hike. That's my non-negotiable is I get fresh air every single day. This might allude a bit to your final word that I want to make sure you can share with our audience. What's the last thing you want our listeners to know about nature as medicine? So I'm going to give you the nature dose because some people think, gosh, do I have to live in a tent? So what the research and evidence shows is aiming to get 20 minutes per day of nature exposure. And that can be split up. So if you could do 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes in the evening, that's great. If you want to spend more than that, wonderful. But the goal is 20 minutes per day, and or 120 minutes per week. So we know that early morning sunlight getting outdoors, preferably by 9 or 10 a.m. in the morning, is going to be really beneficial. It helps us set your circadian clock. It helps to boost your serotonin levels. It helps to decrease your cortisol and helps to get that melatonin clock flowing as well. So I tell people, try to get outdoors in the morning. And if you want to take your dog for a walk or go for a walk or just have tea outside and journal, but really important to get outdoors And that dose we could prescribe for everyone is 20 minutes per day. Thank you so much for letting us pick your brilliant brain today, Dr. Melissa Thunderman, known as Dr. Outdoors on the Let's Talk Brain Health podcast. We hope today's conversation will inspire our audience to bring nature in, to get their dose of vitamin N, or to leave on your prescription to go get outdoors. Thank you for investing in your personal brain care by listening to this episode. We hope Let's Talk Brain Health has provided new insights, inspiration, and action steps to support your personal brain health journey. We encourage you to continue learning about brain health science and hope you will share our podcast with others. We look forward to exploring more topics related to brain health in future episodes. Email podcast at virtualbrainhealthcenter.com with questions or topics of interest. We are here for you. Until next time, may you give your brain the care it deserves. Make your brain health a priority.